No one wants to suffer. It is as simple as that. And yet, as we're going to talk about this morning, there is a responsibility that we have as followers of Jesus Christ to suffer for the sake of Christ. It is this responsibility to suffer for the the sake of Christ and our embracing of this responsibility that will often determine whether what we do is right or wrong. It is our embrace of this responsibility that allows us to maintain our Christian witness to the world. It is not a topic we often talk about or want to tackle head on because it is such an unpleasant topic, suffering. And yet without a hard preparation to suffer and the conviction to want to suffer for the sake of Christ as a responsibility, many of us, in fact, most of us will fail when the situation arises that tests our willingness to suffer for Christ's sake. Just this past week, as I was watching a movie with my wife, there were seated behind us, in the row behind, a group of young people that kept talking almost from beginning to end. Even through the key moments of the movie, they were talking. Towards the emotional climax near the end, they kept talking, and I got very annoyed. And so I could take it no longer. I turned around to stare at them, hoping that they would get my hint for them to be quiet. But they didn't. And they kept on talking until the end of the movie. It takes a lot to trigger me into anger. But I was very upset. I had paid good money to watch this movie. And so I figured I would tell them what proper etiquette was and would lecture them that at the movies it is very inconsiderate like it is in the church to talk while other people are watching and enjoying a movie and so as the end credits rolled i got up and turned around and i lectured them like i would do in the high school chapel about how inconsiderate it was of them to talk while other people were enjoying the movie Do you know their response? They laughed at me. Not even a sorry. They laughed in my face. The anger rised up in me. And I wanted to punch each one of them. I know that's not very pastorly. But that's what I wanted to do. But good thing I didn't, or I would suffer the ramifications. Feeling I better sit down, or else anger would get the better hold of me, I did that. But there I sat there, feeling very upset, very angry. I felt most upset that I got laughed at for doing what I thought was right, and calling their attention to their inconsiderateness. Now, I am not equating having someone talk behind you in the movies as the same as suffering for the sake of Jesus Christ. But my point is, when you are unprepared to suffer for a just cause, the natural response 
is one of bitterness and anger. That's why many people, many Christians, who undergo suffering are very bitter at God. And that's why very few are willing to endure suffering for the sake of Christ because it will turn them into a very angry, bitter person. And yet in the scriptures, we are called on to take the responsibility to suffer, to endure suffering for the sake of Christ. How do we do so? Let's tackle this issue this morning as we continue our study in the book of 1 Peter. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter chapter 4 as we take a look at verses 12 to 19. We continue our series entitled, Own Up, A Call for Personal Responsibility. 1 Peter chapter 4 verses 12 to 19 is what we will be looking at this morning. And I begin with what Peter writes in verse 12. Look with me. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. Peter begins by telling the readers and us very clearly that we should not think it strange when we encounter suffering in this world for the sake of Jesus Christ. Now, the contextual emphasis of this passage is not about general suffering. The contextual emphasis is specifically about suffering for the sake of Christ. And in this type of suffering, we need to remember that it is normal. It is natural. The Bible says very clearly in verse 12, it should not be thought of as something strange or out of the ordinary. It is a fact of the Christian life, if you are walking a Christ-like path, that you will suffer for the sake of Christ. Therefore, if you have never experienced suffering for the sake of Christ, if you have never been misunderstood for the sake of Christ, which should be normal, then perhaps you and I are too comfortable in the world in which we live. And we are not sticking our necks out for Jesus Christ as we should. If you have never experienced misunderstanding or suffering for the sake of Christ, which is to be normal, then you are not, perhaps, sticking your necks out enough and walking the Christian life as you should. Now, if this is something that is normal for the Christian, then what should our attitudes be? Look at verse 13. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when His glory is revealed, you may also be glad. Note this, underline this, with exceeding joy. Verse 13 reminds us that in situations when we suffer for the sake of Christ, we need to rejoice. Imagine that. To rejoice in our suffering as a mindset of all things. Now, it's not because you're masochistic, meaning you invite or enjoy misery. It's because, as verse 12 tells us, in our suffering, we emulate what Jesus experienced in his suffering. And as partakers of his suffering, we reveal the glory of God. Our suffering for the sake of Christ 
should be something we rejoice in because the end goal is that God is glorified. And whenever God is glorified in our lives, it should give us deep, deep joy. Now, I know this is very theological and theoretical. How does this work out practically? The person that came to mind when I read these verses was Jim Elliott. I don't know if you're familiar with the missionary Jim Elliott, but I know you know his phrase or his statement, his quote. He wrote these words, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. These are the words of Jim Elliot. And these words are made more profound if you know his life. You see, Jim Elliot gave his life to the Lord when he died at the age of 29. 29 years old. Such great spiritual maturity that a man in his 20s can say he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep, which is his very life, to gain what he cannot lose. You see, Jim Elliott, if you know his story, was a missionary to Ecuador. He wanted to reach the unreached. And so he and his wife were trained in Wycliffe for Bible translation. And he went out to South America looking for a tribe that did not know Jesus. He was with his pilot friend as they piloted around the jungles of South America looking for a tribe that God would place on their hearts to reach out to. And there, as they circled the jungle, they spotted the tiny Aka Indian settlement in the jungles of Ecuador. Something moved in his heart, and Jim Elliott said, God wants us to reach the Aka Indian settlement. As he did research on this tribe, he realized that this was a fearsome tribe, a brutal tribe. It would not be easy. But he was not scared because he was so passionate to share the good news of Jesus Christ that he and four friends trekked the jungles of Ecuador to reach the Aka tribe, to reach out to them so that they might hear the good news of Jesus Christ. Do you know what happened to Jim Elliott and his four friends? What happened was that all five were speared to death and cut up with machetes. And their bodies were found floating down the river. You may think at the age of 29, what a life that has been wasted. But their lives were not wasted because they took on the responsibility to suffer for the sake of Jesus Christ. And their death in the 1950s inspired a generation of missionaries to rise up, even their own family, Jim's wife Elizabeth, and their child, and the families of those who were killed, continued the work in South America. Soon, the Aka Indians were reached for Christ, and many came to a saving knowledge of Him. One of the killers even gave his testimony. He said to Elizabeth Elliot, I have killed 12 people with my spear, but I did it when my heart was black. 
Now Jesus' blood has washed my heart clean so I don't live like that anymore. God's love has changed my life. When one suffers for the sake of Christ, God is glorified. And throughout the generations of missionaries and those who hear the story of Jim Elliot and his friends, we celebrate his life. We rejoice at what God has done amid suffering. And therefore, you should have the mindset and an attitude to rejoice when you suffer for Jesus. As a side note, can I say, I want to encourage you, especially young people, parents who pick out the reading materials for their children, read about people like Jim Elliott. You can't tell me his life was not exciting. His life is very exciting. If you want to know more about the life of Jim Elliott, you can read the books written by his wife, Elizabeth Elliott, speaking about the situation and what transpired. Uh, One book is called The Shadow of the Almighty, and the other is Through the Gates of Splendor, an amazing book. It will change your life through gates of splendor. Parents, encourage your children to mold their hearts Not simply read books that cloud your children's mind with worlds of fantasy and witchcraft. Teach them about men and women of faith so that their hearts will be enriched and their hearts so tender when young will be molded to know what following Jesus means. It is in the suffering for the sake of Christ that the glory of God is seen and in men and women who live lives like this We can rejoice. Verse 14. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you. For the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed. But on your part, he is glorified. Is this the perspective you have when you undergo persecution when you suffer for the sake of Christ? Do you think that you are blessed? That when they are attacking you because of your Christian walk, you are blessed because you are on the side of Jesus Christ. While they are blaspheming him, you are being glorified because his glory is seen in you. My friends, can you take the rejection And recognize that your rejection by the world is an acknowledgement of your walk with Christ. Did you get that? Do you recognize that your rejection by the world and your suffering for Christ's sake is a recognition and an acknowledgement that you are walking with Jesus? When you do what is right and they ridicule you and they call you dumb and they call you stupid and they tell you you don't know how the real world works. Do you still hold firm? And do you have an attitude that says, you know, I don't mind those things because I know that in my actions, God is glorified. You see, putting it all together in verses 12 to 14, Peter is advocating for the changing of one's mindset, one's attitude in order to take up the responsibility to suffer for the sake of Christ. And if you're taking notes, here's number one. A mindset that rejoices when you suffer. If you have a mindset and an attitude of rejoicing when you suffer, 
you will be able to take on the mantle of responsibility to suffer for Christ's sake. Not to shy away from it. To embrace it. To rejoice when suffering occurs as an opportunity and as a privilege to glorify God. It's taking what someone says about you in criticism and replying back to them their criticism is a compliment. For example, if someone criticizes you and tells you, you know, you're too fat, you can reply, thank you. There is more of me to love. Or if someone criticizes you and says, you know what, you're a nerd. You tell them, thank you. I do like to be smarter than you. I know that's kind of sarcastic, but you get my point. Or if someone says to you, you know what, you're, you're too slow, you're so slow, you tell them, thank you, I do take time to enjoy life. Or if someone criticizes you and says, you know, you're so naive, you're too nice, you say, thank you, try to treat others as I want to be treated. Or perhaps someone says of you, you know what, you're too religious. You're, you're too dedicated, you're too much of a Christian. Can you say thank you? I take that as a compliment. I do try to follow the example of Christ. You see, this transformation of attitude takes criticism and turns it into a compliment. And that's the emphasis of Peter. Take your sufferings for Christ's sake and turn it into one of rejoicing. It is a privilege to suffer for Christ because it is a badge of honor that acknowledges that you are walking Christ-like. How often do you hear people say, I, grow, I grew closer to God when everything was going well in my life. Now that should be very natural because when everything is going well with your life, you have a lot of free time and in that free time you can spend it with God. But I know that's not reality. For most people, they grow the most, they, they grow deepest in their walk with God when they go through times of suffering. Joseph Tosson, who faced the evils of communist Romania, once wrote, This world, with all its evil, is God's deliberately chosen environment for people to grow in their characters. God has placed Christians in a sinful world so that we can learn what it means to grow close to God. The process of suffering for the sake of Christ brings us to an intimacy that those who do not suffer do not know. If you ever get a chance to travel to Europe, make sure you go to the city of Chamonix, in France, in southeast France. It's on the tip of the French Alps, and I've been there. It's a beautiful, beautiful place. In Chamonix, uh, you will find Mount Blanc. Not the pen, uh, but the mountain which the pen is named after. Mount Blanc being the highest mountain in Europe. I have been to the top of Mount Blanc. And from there, it is a stunning view. 
On a clear day, you can see Mount Matterhorn, also more than 4,000 meters high off in the distance. Now, you may be thinking, I didn't know Pastor Steve was a mountain climber. There are many things you don't know about my life. But I remember getting to the top and looking down to see all the other mountain climbers behind me having climbed for days just to get to the top where I was standing to get this most amazing view from the top. But what you also don't know about me is that I'm very lazy. And I took the Agui de Midi, which is a mountain tram that takes you from base all the way to the top in 10 minutes. And then you put on your snowshoe spikes and then just walk 50 meters to the ledge to get an amazing view. For one who didn't climb, to one who spent years to train, days to climb, we got the same view, the same amazing view. But I can't talk about the view as they did. Because that view didn't cost me more than but a few bucks. But for many of them, it cost them the perils of their life. I spent a few days there in the area of Chamonix. I talked to many of the mountain climbers there. And I asked them, what drives you to climb this mountain? Is it to get to the top of the highest peak in Europe? Why do you spend years of training, thousands of dollars, days in the peril of your life to get to the top? And they tell me it is the joy of climbing. No one gets to the top and says, you know, I'm so angry. I look at you. I spent years training. I spent days to climb when I could have taken the back tram up to the top in 10 minutes. It is in the process in which they find joy. So it is with suffering. It is in the process and the journey of suffering that one finds the deep intimacy and fellowship with God. You see, I've dealt with many people throughout my pastorate, many men and women who have suffered for the cause of Christ. And two things usually happen. Two types of people come out of the process of suffering. Unfortunately, the vast majority of men and women who suffer become very bitter and very angry. They don't know why God would allow them faithful men and women who have honored the Lord to experience what they are experiencing. And so they get mad at God. And they say, God, why do you allow something like this to happen to me? I've been a good Christian. I will not suffer for you anymore because it brings me no joy. And so they become very jaded and bitter and angry. And then you have these men and women who go through the process of suffering for the sake of Christ. And they know an intimacy with God like no others. Because it is in those times of great difficulties when their journey finds great meaning. It is when they can carry no longer and experience the scorn of shame that is when Jesus picks them up figuratively and many times literally, and allows them to take one more step and get through the day. 
the men and women who understand suffering and come through it with joy understand God in a most intimate way. And so may it be for each of us when we take on the mantle of responsibility to suffer for the sake of Christ, that we have an attitude and a mindset that rejoices in suffering. Verse 15 and 16. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. Peter says in verse 15, if you suffer because of your own sin, then that's your own doing. That's the consequences of sin. You are justly suffering for the consequences of your sin. But in verse 16, he says, But if you suffer for the sake of Christ as a Christian, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, underline this phrase, circle it, let him not be ashamed. If you suffer for the sake of Christ, do not be ashamed for what you are experiencing. I believe part of the reasons why Christians don't like suffering is because of the shame we feel. The shame of if we suffer, other people thinking that somehow we disobeyed God and so God is angry at us. Or the the shame we feel of rejection. The shame of being an outcast. The shame of being different. The shame of being laughed at only when we have done what we believe is right. Shame. Do you remember the story of Peter? Peter was one of those disciples who proclaimed very boisterously and loudly to Jesus that even if everyone leaves you, I will never leave you. And yet what happened on that Thursday night when Jesus was brought and arrested in Gethsemane and brought before the high priest Caiaphas? Peter was right behind him lurking in the courtyard. And as Jesus was going through the unfair trial before the high priest Caiaphas, Peter was in the courtyard and the people began to recognize him. They said, hey, aren't you Peter? Hey, aren't you the man who was with this Jesus? And Peter denied Christ. He was ashamed. He denied Christ three times. As the gospel accounts tell us, he even cursed. I do not know this man, Jesus. How dare you associate me with him? And on his third denial, the rooster crowed. And what does the Bible tell us? He left ashamed. Peter was ashamed to suffer for the sake of Christ. And it is this same Peter who now writes verse 16. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this manner. This same Peter who denied Christ and left ashamed learned his lesson. In his journey with the Lord, he realized that there is no shame when one identifies with Christ. 
There is nothing shameful, even though suffering is a consequence with identifying with Jesus Christ. And that is how one glorifies God with our lives. How many of you are shamed because of Jesus? Yes, you are not shamed here because this is a Christian community. But when you are out in your circles of influence in the community, how many of you feel ashamed? Because you believe in a Jesus Christ who died for your sins. And you worship him on a Sunday morning. Many of us are. But the Bible tells us there is no shame. What Peter does in verses 17 to 18 is that he takes two verses and he compares the suffering of Christians now and the sufferings of the unbelievers in the future. He's saying you don't have to be ashamed of your suffering now because the suffering you're undergoing is different from the suffering that the unbelievers will experience. Look at verse 17. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? What Peter writes in verse 17 is temporary suffering. He says what you're going through right now is temporary. It's in contrast to the suffering that unbelievers will experience, which is forever. Imagine that. No shame in your suffering because your suffering is temporary, but their suffering is eternal. Now, it's not something we gloat over, but that is the reality. It's not like where I perhaps could have said to those young people at the movies at the beginning illustration, laugh at me all you want, but you won't be laughing when you are in hell forever. That would be terrible. For me to think like that and praise the lord that thought did not enter my mind but what did happen was that i had begun to prepare for this sermon and as they laughed at me for three or four minutes i sat down stewing in my anger and was even more angry as they walked down the aisle still laughing i know they were giggling about what i had done and then these words came to mind. And I began to feel sorry for them. And it's not because I'm a pastor. And it's not because I'm holier than you or more righteous. I'm not. But with the truth of the matter, I felt sorry that perhaps they don't know Jesus Christ. And I felt sorry for what they would have to endure if they don't know Jesus. And again, not because I'm a pastor and because I'm holier but i prayed for them a silent prayer lord forgive me but let them see christ sometime in their life you see it's okay to suffer for christ's sake as there is no shame knowing of the suffering that awaits others again the life of jim elliot exemplifies this principle because in his death it led to the Aka Indians coming to know Christ. You know, in the writings of this man, and we know what he wrote because his wife published his journals, Jim Elliot was never ashamed for his suffering for Christ. He was ridiculed. He was called crazy. 
to go down to South America when life was good for him in America. He was never ashamed of his passionate desire to reach out to the unreached. In one of his journal entries, he wrote these words. When it comes time to die, make sure all you got to do is die. When it comes to die, make sure all you got to do is die. What was he was saying was no regrets. He was not ashamed of any of his actions. When it comes time for the God to call you home, make sure it is a moment of pride. The second comparison Peter uses is in verse 18 about the suffering of Christians now versus the suffering of unbelievers in the future. Look at verse 18. Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Now, what Peter is talking about in verse 18 is talking about intensity. He says, if you as a righteous person is, is barely surviving, you think, Lord, I, I can't handle all the suffering. He says, imagine about those who have to appear before God in his judgment. Where will the ungodly and sinner appear? They will appear before the judgment of God. And there they will not escape suffering. And therefore, we don't have to be ashamed of our own suffering for Jesus because of the suffering of those unbelievers will be worse. Again, it's not something that you should gloat over, but it should bring compassion to your heart. A heart that knows this truth sees through eyes of compassion versus eyes of hatred. You see, I'm reminded of what our Lord said when he was on the cross and the people were shouting, crucify him, crucify him. Do you remember the words of our Lord? With all tenderness and all genuineness, he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Jesus felt such compassion on these sinners because he knew what would happen to them in the final judgment if they don't believe him. And so as he's undergoing their chance of crucify him and uh, enduring the pain of crucifixion, he has the genuine compassion and love of spirit to say, forgive them, Father, for they do not know what they're doing. Likewise, we who suffer now for Christ's sake, as Paul would write in 2 Corinthians 4.17, we are suffering a light and momentary trouble in light of what is to come. There is no shame in our temporary and light suffering compared to what others will experience. Putting verses 15 to 18 together, we see that to carry on the responsibility of suffering for the sake of Christ, number two, is to recognize there is no shame in suffering. To recognize, number two, there is no shame in suffering. Number one is an attitude that rejoices in suffering. Number two is to recognize there is no shame in suffering. 
The life of William Tyndale is one where one finds this truth exemplified of no shame and suffering. Tyndale lived 500 years before our time. And he lived in a time when he saw that the religious figures of his day were living very sinful lives, inconsistent with what the Word of God tells us how we are to live. But the problem was, the people could not read the Bible. Because the Bible, at that time, was only in one version, the Latin Vulgate. It was in Latin. And Tyndale lived in England, where the common language was English. And so the priests who were living lives of sin, simply did not preach on those topics in the areas in which they were sinning, right? And no one could read the Bible, so they couldn't say, hey, priest, but it says this in the Bible. And so William Tyndale, who could read Latin and Greek and Hebrew, began to preach in the public squares of what the Bible taught. A local bishop got very angry and told him to stop preaching in public. In response, he uttered these famous words. If God spares my life, before very long I shall cause a farmer boy to know the scriptures better than you. And this was not an idle boast on the part of Tyndale. You see, William Tyndale was going to put an end to scriptural ignorance. He wanted men and women to read the Bible for themselves. And so he was going to translate the Bible from Greek and Hebrew into English so that everyone could read the Bible for themselves. And so he did so. And you know how he was rewarded? He was rewarded with an arrest warrant by King Henry VIII of England for subversion. Here is a man who wanted the Word of God to be read by all. And you can know his times and the evils of his times when they arrested him for wanting people to read the Bible. He was betrayed by a friend, brought back to England from Belgium, under torture, he would not apologize. He would not recount. Because he found no shame in suffering for Christ. He was convicted of heresy, executed by strangulation, and his body was burned at the stake. My friends, when you, when you read the Bible, I wonder how much you take it for granted. Because in generations past, men and women of God lost their lives just to get this word into your hands. And some of you can't even bring it to church to read it. And some of you can't even open it in your homes to read what the Word of God has to say. Men and women who dearly love God wanted you, challenged by the Holy Spirit, 
to know what God's word is for his people. The dying words of William Tyndale were these. He prayed this. Lord, open the king of England's eyes. That was his prayer. He prayed for his enemy. He prayed for the one who has signed his death warrant for translating the Bible into English. Lord, open his eyes that he would see the truth. That prayer was answered two years later after Tyndale's death when Henry VIII ordered that the English Bible be used in every church in England. And that Bible was the Coverdale Bible of which largely was based upon the translating work of Tyndale. In fact, you can still read many of Tyndale's translating work to this day if you read from the King James Bible of 1611 because a lot of that work was done based on the translating work of William Tyndale. And I preached from the New King James this morning. The work of Tyndale and his desire to suffer for the sake of Christ running, if you read his fascinating story, running and escaping the forces of King Henry VIII just to be able to translate one or two verses in the Bible. Amazing. He did not die in vain because he saw no shame in suffering. Even to this day in Cambridge University, you can go to a place called Tyndale House where today, more than 600 years after he died, they still study and translate the Bible in Cambridge University. My friends, if you never see shame in suffering for Christ, then you will wear it as a badge of honor for God's glory. That's what verse 16 says. I believe it is when men and women stop being so ashamed of Jesus Christ in their life that they will begin to do great things for him. It is because we are so afraid today of sticking our necks out for Jesus Christ and identifying with him, even in this free country of ours, even in our social circles, that we cannot do anything great for Jesus Christ. But I know that God can raise up in this generation men and women who will do great things for Jesus because they are not ashamed of the cross and they are not ashamed of the name of Jesus Christ. And they wear it as a badge of honor and of pride when the banner of Christ is over their head. If only his people would see no shame in suffering for his sake. This, my friends, is our responsibility as followers of Jesus Christ. Verse 19 as we end. Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to Him in doing good as to a faithful Creator. Peter concludes in verse 19 that those who are undergoing suffering for the sake of Christ should put their lives in the hand of Almighty God. And we should not worry because He is a faithful Creator. God is faithful, and he will see to it that all those who suffer for the sake of Christ 
will be taken care of. That is our assurance. How do we know that? How do we know that these words are true? Because he took care of his own son. Jesus died on the cross. But he had a mindset of rejoicing. He rejoiced going to the cross knowing that many would come to salvation and would receive eternal life. Jesus saw no shame of going to experience temporary suffering on the cross. Isaiah 53 verse 2 tells us, He was despised and rejected by man. And then a few verses down in this wonderful chapter of Isaiah, By His stripes we are healed. He willingly, volitionally suffered the shame on the cross because he knew we would be saved. And how did God take care of him? The Bible tells us, and God exalted him to the right hand of the Father. Don't you ever think that if you suffer for the sake of Christ, that you will not be taken care of, that somehow you have been abandoned by God. No. It is in that moment that you will experience joy and hope and peace. And it is in that moment that your little life and my little life will be exalted and blessed by a faithful creator. Suffering. It's not a word we like. But when we understand that suffering in the context of for the sake of Christ, it is something all of us should rally around. Because it is in the suffering of our lives that God is most glorified. Let's pray. And Heavenly Father, through your word, I thank you for speaking to my heart. May you raise up a generation of men and women in our midst this morning who will not be ashamed of the cross and not be ashamed of Jesus Christ, who would willingly take the criticism of a walk with God by the world as an affirmation, a badge of honor of their faithful commitment to Jesus. Change our mindset, change our attitude. And as we go to a time of communion, help us to drive this lesson even deeper. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.